Our text for this morning is a familiar text, I would think, for most, if not all of us. This is a faithful saying, it's 1 Timothy 1.15, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's the apostle Paul who wrote those words. This is a faithful saying. If you've read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, letters by Paul to individual church leaders, Timothy and Titus, you know that several times, maybe over five, um, three times at least, Paul uses this kind of language. This is a faithful saying. And what, it, what he's telling us is that I'm writing this to people that know what I'm going to say. They might not know without reading it, but once they read it, they go, boom, that rings a bell. This is a faithful saying. This is a saying that Christians were speaking before Paul wrote it. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. This is known among the Christians in the first century before Paul writes 1 Timothy 1.15. So whatever he's going to say, it was a common saying among Christians that they all accepted. It's, he, he says, worthy of all acceptance. And here's the statement, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So I'm going to explain this text by asking and answering questions. First question is, who is this? Who is he talking about? And the answer is Christ Jesus. You know, a few times in the, the epistles, you'll have Jesus Christ. Uh, but Christ Jesus is a normal pattern for Paul. Christ is a title. Remember, I've said this before. Jesus wasn't his first name, and Christ his last name. Okay, they just had names, and his was Jesus. And they usually connected themselves to their ancestors through their ancestral lines. But Christ is a, a title, okay? A title uniquely is, it indicates a role, it indicates a calling, it indicates a vocation, it indicates God's special servant as promised in the Old Testament. Have you ever thought of that? If we're over here in the New Testament, if we're over here in the New Testament, the timeline starts over here in the Old Testament, and this Christ Jesus, this title Christ, actually has a lot of press in the Old Testament. He's promised hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before he actually comes. So when Paul says Christ Jesus, biblically aware readers realize this is a long story. This is not some newbie, new kid on the block. This Christ figure, this Messiah, this anointed person, this job description to be the servant of the Lord has ancient roots. God revealed it through Moses and the prophets and the writers of, of the Psalms about the future. So this is no small statement. You can see why this is a faithful saying because it's in line with what God is already saying. There is this person called Christ, and we'll get to Jesus in a moment, and this is no small figure. This person Paul is writing about is the Messiah, uh, the one especially anointed by God, 
the promised one of the Old Testament who would come to deliver God's people from their sins and their guilt. Guilt. And being anointed by God means that he was completely furnished with everything he needed to fulfill his calling and no one can stop him from fulfilling his calling. This is a huge title, Christ. If you know this Christ, you're in good hands. Uh, better hands than all state, by the way. You're in the, the, the mighty grip of God. God has you secure in Christ, the Messiah, who, would, who is the word, who was made flesh, as we'll see later, and who assumed our flesh in order to bring it to glory, to repair it and bring it to glory, to deal with uh, the, the guilt of sin and to deal with the lack of righteousness. No one is going to stop the Christ from saving sinners. You shall call his name Jesus. That's the next thing we'll look at. For he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus. He's called Christ Jesus. So who? Christ Jesus. This is his given name. According to Matthew 1.21, an angel of the Lord told Joseph to name the child in Mary's womb Jesus as I just quoted, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, or we say Joshua. That should ring a bell. There's a major figure in the early Old Testament history called Joshua, and it means the Lord delivers or the Lord saves. So you know how Moses sinned, and God withheld a blessing from him. He didn't take the people across the River Jordan into the promised land. He raised up Joshua, the Lord saves, to take the people from the wilderness into the holy place. You think the first Joshua has anything to do with Jesus, Christ Jesus? I think so. He's a figure that predates Jesus and yet does some actions and certainly his name indicates something, but some of his actions prefigure the greater actions of the Lord Jesus himself. The first Joshua has a second Joshua. The first Joshua has a last Joshua. The, the lesser Joshua has a greater Joshua, and Jesus is that second, last, and greater Joshua. It's no small thing that he's called Christ Jesus. So that was the first question, who? Uh, the second question is what? Came. Christ Jesus came into the world is the where question, but where at what? He came into the world. Now, this could have two different meanings. Uh, I came into the world in one sense. I wasn't, and then I was in my mother's womb. It could mean Jesus, just like me, just like you, wasn't, and then he was in his mother's womb, but I don't think that's what it means. Because remember, this is a faithful saying. This is something that was circulating among the Christians at the time before Jesus, before Paul wrote 1 Timothy 1.15. So it could mean could, in the realm of possibility, mean just like we come into the world, father, mother, show up in the womb, then you're born. 
But since it's a faithful saying, since it was circulating already among the early Christians, could it be that it has a a more deeper meaning that they realized because of the revelation of the Son of God incarnate that predates Paul's writing? And some of the Gospels were already written. Maybe John had written his Gospel. We don't know. But the truths contained in John's Gospel were already revealed, in one sense, to the people, and there were other gospels written, could it be that this came into the world has a deeper meaning than just like we come into the world? And the answer to that is yes. And some of you are going, well, we knew that already. Could you get to the point? Came into the world. Well-known and accepted statement of the time. Now, I'm going to say this. I think Paul is borrowing language and concepts that good readers of the entire New Testament know are contained elsewhere in the New Testament, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's just off the top of my head, a few John texts and a Luke text. Okay, so, so this language of coming into the world is borrowed from elsewhere. Paul's doing, Paul's applying the work of Christ to Timothy and those others he was writing to by using language it was common among the Christians. Christ Jesus came into the world. Not like we came into the world. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her in her womb, and that holy thing produced in her will be called the Son of God. Did, did anybody have an angel on, on the birthing table when you were born, or excuse me, on the, uh, when you were first conceived and you heard a voice from heaven saying, that holy thing in your womb shall be called the Son of God. None of us did, nobody ever has. That only happened one time. This coming into the world is very unique for Christ Jesus. One man says of this statement, thus, when used with reference to Jesus here, came into the world, carries the idea of coming from the Father into the world. He came into the world having been sent by the Father. That's pretty Johannine, that means John. You, you read that a lot in the Gospel of John. Now, there is implied here a profound reality which is often missed. Coming into the world does not mark the beginning for the Son of God. Coming into the world for us, as far as conception goes, marks the beginning of us in the world, right? We first start in the world in a, in a womb, and then we come out into the physical world. But coming into the world for Christ Jesus is not like us coming into the world. Remember John? We've got to deal with John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from Him, the Word. And the Word became 
flesh. John 1.14, this is this season uh, on our calendar where people tend to think about this stuff more, and not always rightly. The incarnation, the Word was with God, the Word, who's identified as the Son of God later in John chapter 1, was God, the Word, created all things, and yet the Word, never ceasing to be, the Word who is with God and God, and the creator of all things, became flesh. This is the mystery of the incarnation. I think that's what Paul's getting at here to Christ Jesus came into the world, that is, he became flesh, that is, he who was in the form of God, who was God and equal to the Father, assumed what he was not, flesh, which, by the way, I will pour my spirit on all flesh, Joel chapter 2. Flesh, just the word flesh, can mean physical stuff, or it can mean human nature, body, soul. I think that's what it means there. He assumed a real body. He assumed a, a rational soul, which is what the theologians try to distinguish our minds, our souls, from that of non-rational souls, which would be animals. Do animals have souls? I used to think they didn't. But if you define a soul as some sort of faculty of interacting, interacting with creation out there other than with their physical bodies. Well, yeah, they do. But they're not rational souls. They're not created in the image of God's souls. The Lord Jesus, the second person, the Son of God, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, becomes what he was not, never ceasing to be what he always was. That's traditional Christian uh, orthodoxy right there. He came into the world. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Before Abraham was, on the timeline of the Bible, Jesus is over here. Here's the cross. Here's the Old Testament ending. Here's the New Testament. Before Abraham was, way back here, I am. That's a mind-blowing statement by the incarnate Son of God, speaking according to his human nature, sucking in air, blowing it out, changing his lips and, and tongue and all that stuff to make sound, occur, create sound waves that go through the air and hit people's ears. And if they understand the different inflections and intonations of the language, they understand the meaning of it. But he's not talking about his human nature because his human nature began to be in the womb. I am is a divine name. So when he says Christ Jesus came into the world, it's very profound. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. That's Paul again, Galatians 4. Sounds familiar language. If anybody can remember any of the John sermons I've been preaching, there's sent language in the Gospel of John. Paul's using the same language by the time he writes Galatians. God sent forth his Son. That holy thing shall be called the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God is the Lamb of God. The Lamb is signifying that he is going to be offered as a sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, right? Where did that come from? The Old Testament. What do you think all the, all the slaying of the animals was ultimately pointing to? Obviously, Jesus. So when Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world, he's talking about, and this is why you came this morning, the hypostatic union. The union of the two distinct natures, we may distinguish the divine nature from the human nature, and we must, but both are in the one person. The divine nature and the divine son are eternal. The human nature is finite. It was created. Thou hast prepared a body for me, Hebrews 10. He said, when he came upon the earth, he said, that is the incarnate son, quoted Psalm 40 about a body being prepared for him. So he assumes real flesh and bones and blood, a physical body, an a material body, an immaterial soul. God, the Son, becomes man. He didn't assume angelic nature, did he? He assumed the nature of children who had gone astray. Sinners. He assumed a nature that had been uh, marred and scarred in order to fix it. And he assumed this nature, not in some, you know, in some paradise billions of miles away from us. He assumed this nature in the context of the wilderness of sin. That's even more mind-boggling. Why couldn't he just assume our nature but stay someplace else where he couldn't, been, couldn't have been attacked and harmed? God is showing, displaying what appears to be, at first, weakness. He's just one of us. And yet, there's an irony there because this weak thing, this real man, this very man, is actually very God as well. And he can say things like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. No one takes my life from me. I give it up. I can take it back. Some of us are closer to the grave than others, but none of us are going to say, I'm going to die at the very moment I give up my life and then watch me. I'm going to reunite my soul into my corpse and it will be reanimated. Watch how I do that. I mean, we can, you can say that all you want. It's not going to happen, right? But it happened with one, only one. So he has to have more than just very man capabilities, right? 
He's got to have the knowledge that he possesses the power to both give his life up and to take it back. And then he's got to really have that power. So this is great as the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. So we've asked uh, a few questions, two questions so far. Who? Christ Jesus. What? Came into the world. Where? Came into the world. Now we'll get to do the prepositional phrase there. Into the world, the sphere or the habitation of humanity. The place where human beings live. The place where human beings sin. Where idolatry takes place every day. Where God's name is trampled upon and used as a curse word. Where God's law is despised and ridiculed. Where murder takes place. Where there is Hatred for both man and God, where adults violate God's law, where teenagers violate God's law, where children violate God's law, where liars and thieves and blasphemers live. That's where he came. He came into that kind of place. That place needs some help, it sounds to me. And you know what? A billion scientists can get their minds together. They can't help that kind of problem. Christ Jesus came into a world of trouble, a dark place, a place full of trials and tribulations. If you haven't figured life out yet, there's trials and tribulations. A place full of sin and a place full of death. He did not come to a paradise. Now, think about the incarnation. Okay, God the Son assuming very man, real flesh, material body, immaterial soul. And somebody's watching this happen going. So he comes on the turf where the devil got the first Adam and duped him and he sinned. Divine judgment came upon him. He comes to the very place where that first happened. He assumes the very nature that was basically destroyed by the devil at the, at the beginning. He assumes the very nature that the devil beat the first man in, and he, as the last man or the last Adam, is going to beat the devil on his own turf and overturn the effects of the devil's work on the earth. Only God can do that. He was not sent to the Garden of Eden prior to the fall into sin. He came where sin is. He came to a wilderness full of sin. He came into the world. Now, the next question is why? Our text answers that. Why this incarnation of the Son of God? Here it is. To save sinners. It doesn't say to save Sinners who do their best to save those who do their best, which would be even worse. It just says to save sinners, people who step over the boundary markers of God's law, people who either do things they ought not to do or don't do things they ought to do, people who do things they ought not to do in public, people who do things they ought not to do in private, people who don't do things they ought to do in public, and people who 
Don't do things they ought to do in private. I think that's how that goes. People who do things externally through using their limbs and lips, people who do things they ought not to do internally by virtue of their thoughts and intentions. He came to save sinners. It's a clear and glorious goal for his coming. Isn't it wonderful that he doesn't say this? Christ Jesus came into the world, his first coming, to judge sinners. Now, we know that he's judge as well, right? But the intention of God in his first coming was not the final day of judgment. That's for his second coming. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, first coming. You see why Christianity has distinguished between the two comings. The first coming is finds this as a goal, as its uh, initial goal, an ultimate goal, at least for some. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So that means Jesus wasn't simply a martyr for a good cause. You know, some have looked back at Jesus and said, well, a martyr for a good cause. What a great guy. And he got... He got shorted into the stick publicly. He got a mock trial. He got all kinds of accusations that weren't true. But you know what? He went through with it. He died. It's good for us to die for a good cause. He's a martyr. No. He didn't come to fix all our political or financial woes either. He did not come to fill our bank accounts and pockets with money. That's all over the internet and television, isn't it? He didn't come to secure cars and homes and better paying jobs for his followers. You know that there are some dear saints of God who will never get out of poverty. They just won't. And you know what's easy for us to do? Look down our noses at them and say, must be sin. Well, it is ultimately. But if you lived in IT, right? In Haiti, it's, it's way different there. There can be no godly Christians in Haiti because they're all poverty stricken, right? Jesus didn't come to take us out of all those kinds of things. He came on a mission, a mission to save sinners. And this term sinners refers to people who transgress God's law. Sinners do what he forbids, and they don't do what he requires. The incarnate Son of God has come to rescue sinners from danger, doom, and damnation. That's his coming. And if you're sitting here going, well, if that's what he came for, to save sinners from danger, doom, and damnation, I don't need him because I'm not in danger. There's no doom around the corner for me, and certainly not damnation. You don't want to look at yourself that way. Christ Jesus came to do what the Father sent him to do, to bring many sons to glory through suffering unto death. Well, I have a few contemplations to close with. The first is this. This is for doctrinal instruction. Who is Jesus and why did he come to the earth? He is the Christ of God, the anointed servant of God, promised in the Old Testament, sent to save sinners for God. He is God the Son incarnate for us and for our salvation. That's who he is. 
And we got to get his identity right. Once you get his identity right, this two-natured redeemer, you'll start to better understand his vocation, his calling, his mission, why we have a two-natured redeemer. To fix human nature, to repair it, and to bring it to glory. Not only in his own person, but in the persons of others, by virtue of him exercising divine power in the application of his work of redemption to our souls and ultimately our bodies. The second contemplation is this. Notice, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So here's what I want you to think through right now. Have I personally accepted this statement? Can I give my personal amen? It's not only faithful, it corresponds with what Christians have said about Jesus, but it's worthy of full or all acceptance. Now, doubtless, some, hopefully most, I would hope all, I have no idea, would say yea and amen to this statement. But I have to press you further. If I was J.C. Ryle, I would say, my dear hearer, have you taken this faithful saying, thought upon it, agreed with it, and applied it to your own soul? You know how the Puritans say, you must apply Christ. You know what they mean there. You must believe what he says and appropriate it to yourself. So have you fully accepted this statement? Do you believe this good news, this gospel, that the Father sent the Son to live and die and be raised as a reward for his obedience and all of that for others like you and like me? Do you believe that Jesus took care of the problem of sin once and for all? Or do you think you have to? Or do you think there's not even any problem with sin? Or... Are you trusting in or accepting an untrustworthy statement like this? This is an untrustworthy statement and not full, worthy of full acceptance. Here it is. No one's perfect. Ever heard this? Well, no one's perfect. We all have our issues, but it's up to me or you as an individual to make things right with God by being better today than you were yesterday. That's not a trustworthy statement. That's not worthy of full acceptance. That's a lie from the pit, as they would say. It's not a trustworthy statement. It's not deserving of full acceptance. We are not the answer to our biggest problems. We are the problem. We can't overcome in our own persons our biggest problem. You know what our biggest problem is? We're guilty. We violated the law of God. Have you ever thought of this? All these guilty, unforgiving sinners all over the world, which most of us were one of those at one time. Millions. Billions of idolatrous God-haters sucking in God's good gifts every day air to breathe, clothes to wear, food to eat, all that stuff, and yet they're idolatrous God-haters. I've said this before. You ought to be happy I'm not God. I'd have flicked the ants off the globe of the earth a long time ago. I would have gotten, because I'm a creature, sick 
and tired of extending olive branches, mercy over and over and over, patience and kindness to my enemies, I would have said, I'm done with this. But God is long-suffering. God puts up with things for a long time by millions and billions of people. I don't want to get our eyes off ourselves. God puts up with you. God puts up with me and does not give us what we deserve. I just want what I deserve from God. No, you don't. Even unbelievers don't get what they deserve from God. So, have you thought about this statement? It's a wonderful statement. It's a Christian statement. It reflects old truths. It's food for the soul. It's forgiveness of sin. It's a title to glory. It's promises that, that are for you now in your pilgrimage and will help you sort through life and, and repent again and, and believe the promises again and repent again and believe the promises again, again. And slowly but surely, the direction is the right direction. Long obedience in the same direction. But our long obedience in the same direction isn't the ground of our justification. That's already taken care of. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. So if you haven't believed on Jesus, do it. It's the end of the year. New Year's resolution, do it early. December 24th, turn the page from a guilty, uh, vile sinner who's not forgiven to a humble suppliant who goes to Christ with soiled hands and receives the mercy he has for us. Here's one more, I think, maybe two more, I'm not sure observations or contemplations. This one is for personal assessment. You remember the statement at the end of, the, uh, of that verse? Of whom? Of the sinners that he came to save. I am chief. I, I like that translation better. Of whom or among whom? I am chief. That's the Apostle Paul writing. This is, this is not like some... Uh, you know, some murderer that went into prison and, and all he did was wicked things on the earth. This is the holy, mature Apostle Paul. He says, among this group of sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, I am chief. Well, the rest of us are all Indians. Now, if you're honest about yourself, you want to say, Paul, get in the ring, get in the box or whatever they say with me. I'm the chief. But it's interesting. Paul was not afraid of calling a spade a spade. I'm the chief of sinners, he said. He could think of himself, he could look at himself in the mirror and assess himself for what he really was, a sinner, even the foremost or chief of sinners. Listen to what he says just a couple of verses above that. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. You ever read the book of Acts? Paul before he was a believer in Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, was a persecutor of Christians. Paul went from house to house. Remember what he did? He would go in there, or at least he'd order people to go in there, and drag men and women 
out of their homes and put him into prisons because they confessed that Jesus was the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. By the time you get out of Acts chapter 9, that's where that comes from, 8 and 9, you get toward the end of the book of Acts, Paul's saying, hey, I have said nothing other than what Moses and the prophets said would take place, that the Christ should suffer and be raised from the dead on the third day, and that he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Greeks or Gentiles. So at one point, he's killing people for confessing Jesus as the Christ promised in the Old Testament. And another point, he's before magistrates, he's before civil leaders, and he's proclaiming Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners in accordance with the Old Testament. What happened to this guy? Well, you can read the story in Acts 9. He had a visit from heaven. So when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, there's one sense, all right, you can wear those shoes, I get it, because your testimony is not like mine. But we don't necessarily have to take it that way and give, give him that much uh, credit to being the worst of sinners. But because I, I think there's another way that's also true to understand this. Everybody who knows themselves to be a sinner in the proper biblical sense wants to be first in line as the chief of sinners. Recognizes you think, yeah, you think what you've seen is bad. It's way worse than you realize. You think what you've heard about me is bad. Uh, like Spurgeon said once to a lady, you don't know what I wanted to say, but held back. In one sense, it's easy to point out the fault of others. Paul, Paul does this because he puts himself within a group of sinners among whom he's chief. So he's saying there are other people that have faults, okay? But while acknowledging that others sin, he never forgot who he was and where he came from. Sometimes when someone's sin is made known to us, we have a tendency to forget about ourselves. But Paul had a way of remembering something important for all to remember. There's none righteous, no, not one, not even an apostle. We're all corrupt in sin, starting with me. You want to be a chief of sinner? Then you say, okay, the entire human race without Christ is corrupt in sin and guilty, starting with me. That should be the way we view ourselves. We are condemned in sin, starting with me. We must recognize our misery, starting with me. The deplorable condition of our state in sin must grip me. We must recognize our own sin and guilt. We must confess it. We must agree with God about our guilty state. And when we do, our only hope rests not in our confession of our sin or agreeing with God about our guilt. Our only hope lies outside of ourselves in an act of God causing the incarnation to happen in order that he might save sinners and bring them to glory. That's our only hope. Our only hope is not going, yeah, I'm, I'm a bad sinner. Wow, wow, wow. That doesn't give us the remedy. That's the plight. What's the solution? That's the problem. What's the answer? Uh, you remember that 
two stone tablets. Take two tablets. Call me in the morning or wherever. For fast relief, take two tablets. This was up at, the, at a gymnasium in another state where we lived for a while. I walked in and I saw this uh, first four commandments, last six commandments. For fast relief, take two tablets. Now that comes from a commercial, right, in the 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, 70s or 80s or 90s, about medicine, isn't it? Whatever it was. Take two tablets for quick, quick relief, something like that. And I'm going, so you want us... The, the way you get relief for your soul is you do better. It's like, yeah, I should do better. I get it. But I can never do better enough, well enough. I need a better answer for solving my problem than obeying the law. I need, you know what I need? I need God to cause the incarnation to occur so that God assumes my nature, my duties, my liabilities, and executes his divine power to secure forgiveness and redemption for me in such a way that no one can take it from me. That's what I need. I need that kind of a savior. Jesus, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then, Finally, we ought to praise the Lord for this, considering the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. This text calls us to praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, full and final salvation, release from all guilt, a righteousness not our own, earned and freely and sovereignly given to the unworthy and helpless promises with reference to the future that fuel the soul for service now and hope of joy for the future. All that is in store for true believers. If you are one who fully accepts this statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, you should be astounded, meditating on the fact that you fully accept this statement should produce in you thankfulness, wonder, amazement, humility, praise, and service. We should go from here going, man, once again, I was reminded, I don't deserve this. It's all lavished upon me in the beloved one. I can't pay God back, but I can give myself away, like the hymn writer says. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It is a trustworthy statement, worthy of all acceptance, full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Paul added that personal uh, note, footnote to it, among uh, of whom I am chief. Burn these truths into us and help us to sing in response to your truth. We ask, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.